Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the air of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. The word of the Lord. So today's passage, as you heard it read, is not only the final words of this letter that we've been looking at over the last six weeks. This is the seventh week in Second Peter. But it's also, it's the final recorded words of the Apostle Peter. So the last thing, as far as we know, this is the last thing he wrote. Now you may remember that the Lord revealed to him that he was close to his death. And so he was writing this letter with with an urgency and understanding that this is the last communication that he has to the churches under his influence. Which raises the question, what does Peter think is most important to communicate to his readers and to us? What does he think is really, really important so he would close his final letter with this final section? Well, I'd like us to look at his concern, his command, And finally, his Christ, his concern, his command, and finally, his Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 17. There's a tenderness to this. Though he's trying to communicate information, he's mindful of the relationship that he has with his readers, so he calls them beloved. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, he's warned them about false teachers Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. The apostle's main concern is that his beloved friends do not lose their spiritual stability. He wants them to be able to resist the false teachers and to remain firmly established in the truth. This is what he's worried about. Even as he's facing his own death, this is what's on his mind. And Peter warns them and he warns us that there are those who distort the Bible, including the writings of Paul. And there's a real risk of getting carried away with their errors and becoming dangerously unstable. This is, this is what he's losing sleep over. He's saying, I need to write to you, even as I'm facing my own death, to warn you that you can become unstable, that you can lose your firm grip on the gospel. A little over a week ago, there was a windstorm overnight, and we lost a great big oak tree in our yard. 
We lost a tree right here as well, you may remember. But when I, was, when I saw this great tree lying across our backyard, probably, I don't know, 35 feet high, something like that, I immediately thought of two things. One, what am I going to do with all this wood? Or what can I do with all this wood? And two, how can I use this as a sermon illustration? <laughs> I'm not sure which question was first in my mind, but that is how preachers think. We, whatever we experience, it eventually makes it into a sermon. So here's the illustration. When we moved to our house almost two years ago, uh, I gave a name to this tree. I called it the sickly oak. The sickly oak barely had any green leaves on it. It had stopped growing. It was leaning. And then one stormy night last week, it just could not resist a gust of wind, and the sickly oak came down. Now, in God's grace, it, it didn't hit anything on the way down. It just fell perfectly right where it was supposed to, sparing me thousands of dollars of uh, paying for a removal of, of that tree and giving me hours of joy of working with a chainsaw and <laughs> cutting it up. So when I took a closer look at it, I found that the roots and the core of the tree had rotten out. It had been sick for a long time. It had lost its stability, and it couldn't any longer resist strong winds. So it just took one night. It took a particular storm to bring it down, but it was going to happen. It was just a matter of time, and it was a matter of the kind of damage that it would cause to the yard. And so Peter is looking at Christians essentially in that sense, and he's saying, are you stable enough? Can you withstand? Can you resist a false teaching? If a wind blows your way, are you going to be able to stand strong and thrive and grow, or will you be brought down? Are you firmly rooted in the truth? And are you able to resist whatever harmful influences the church can experience today? Influences may differ. False teachings may differ. But it really does depend on your stability as to how you handle it. Now, we can argue about the intensity of storms of our time. It feels like it to me, and I know many of you, it feels like we are dealing with some huge issues in our culture and in our churches. Unusually painful, unusually damaging. But I haven't found anyone who would argue that we are well equipped to resist these storms. Now, we may argue about the intensity and the ferocity of these storms, but nobody is arguing and saying that we are well prepared to resist it. Everybody's noticing that we are struggling. Now, on a pretty regular basis, I have a conversation that goes like this. So someone, maybe a relative at a family gathering or someone at Panera, sometimes somebody I barely know, just kind of throws their hands up in the air and says, what's wrong with us, right? It's kind of like, what's wrong with these people? What's wrong with our culture? What's wrong with this world? It's usually prompted by a particular news story. Something happened last night. And so there's that, that sort of this amazement, right, astonishment. Is how, how, can, how can we do certain things? How can we believe certain things? It just seems absurd sometimes. And whenever I'm in that conversation, my standard answer is, the problem is that we have become untethered. We've lost our stability. We've lost our grip on reality. 
And when there's no longer anything steady to hold on to, it's easy to get thrown around and knocked down by a number of challenges. Yes, we have serious challenges. But the greatest problem is that we're not able to face them well. And so we do all sorts of absurd things in the culture, certainly, but also in the church that expose that we are not as firmly established in the truth as maybe some of us believed. No one has disagreed with my assessment yet. Whenever I enter into those conversations and I say, we're untethered, especially talking about younger generations today, we lack structure, we lack security, we lack something to hold on to, everybody seems to agree with me when I say that. Seems like a pretty obvious state of affairs in our culture today. But as I said, it seems to be also true of the church, at least of some churches, at least of many believers. If our experience of the pandemic is any indication, many professing Christians have shown themselves to be susceptible to be carried away by all sorts of errors. Some have lost their faith altogether and left the church. When the elders went on our annual retreat two years ago, the Spirit impressed on us the need to build up the body of Christ. We walked away from that retreat impressed with this idea of keeping the body healthy and investing in the lives of the disciples and in the community of disciples to build us up. Because, as we read in Ephesians 4, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Words written by Paul and echoed by Peter in his letter seem to remain pretty relevant to us today. So I share Peter's concern. I share his concern that we are unstable, that we need to pursue greater stability, that there are winds blowing that can knock us off our stands. So that's the concern. But what is his command? What's the remedy for this? What's his idea? What's the apostle's idea in order to ensure that we remain established in the truth and not lose our stability? Well, this is verse 18. He says, but grow... Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter's command, and this is a command, this is not a suggestion. Peter, facing his own death, is, is looking at the church of his day, and he says, what we need what we must do is we must grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ to avoid this instability, to resist false teaching. We must grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, this is how he started the letter, which means that he's been thinking about this. This is what, what he wants us to know. This is what, what he wants his churches to know, to remember after he's gone. He started the letter in verse 2 of chapter 1. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. 
He wants growth. He wants, he wants grace to abound. He wants peace to be multiplied, to be more of it through the knowledge of God and of Jesus. And now he closes his letter by exhorting his readers to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. The apostles' vision for the church is stability through growth. Stability through growth. This is the biblical answer to our struggles, is grow. Keep growing. Just like riding a bike, right? When a kid is riding a bike, you want them to keep going. Because you know when they slow down, when they stop pedaling, they're going to wobble and eventually they're just going to fall over. Well, that's the church today. As long as we keep going, as long as we keep growing in the knowledge and grace of our Lord, we'll be fine. We'll be fine. We'll be able to withstand all sorts of things. But if we slow down, if we stop grasping for what's really stable and steady, uh, it's not going to take much to knock us down. The sickly oak in our yard had stopped growing long ago and eventually came down in a storm. Its roots were not growing deep into the soil. I, I actually don't have to get the stump out. It's, it's, it's all out. It's all gone. There's nothing there. I just have to cover up a hole. Because it had been sick and it stopped growing and it's lost its stability and it's just all rotted out. According to the Apostle Peter, our spiritual stability, our ability to resist false teaching depends on our continuous growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's his command. His concern is that we're not stable. His command is that we grow to be stable. So now we need to figure out what it means, right? What does it mean to, to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus? Now this is a, a phrase, right, that every preacher wants because it gives you many sermons if you want it. I've got one. And I have to explain as clearly as I can what it means, not only what these words mean, but what it means for us in practice, because the concern is that we keep applying it, not just understanding it, but we keep applying it so we can grow and avoid instability. So let's take grace first. Now, grace, as you know, is, is favor. It's, it's God's good disposition towards us. It's God gifting us whatever he wants without us deserving it. We're saved by grace. We're saved because we're sinners who can't save themselves, and God comes in and he saves us. That's grace, right? He's just loving and favorable towards us, and so he comes and he saves us. So our salvation from sin, our reconciliation with God, the reversal of our course from death to life is all accomplished by grace, just through his favor. When Jesus died on the cross and rose on the third day, his sacrifice was sufficient to appease God's wrath, to cleanse our guilt, and to restore our relationship with God. And he did all this. He did it, and he did it as a gift that we accept by faith. Now, we don't deserve it, nor can we add to it. Ephesians 2 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. That's grace. Now, it's been given to us by God. Now, the question is, how do we grow in it? How do we grow in this grace of Christ? 
Our growth in grace, in grace is then the application and experience of the grace that is already ours in Christ. Our growth is, is the application and experience of what has already been given to us in Christ. It's already ours. Now we experience it. We apply it. We come into a fuller possession of it in our lives. Now that was Peter's argument in the first chapter, if you remember. He told us that you have all things that pertain to life and godliness. It's all been given to you. You have all the resources. God graciously, right, because he's favorable towards us, he just gave us that. All the resources you need, everything you need for life and godliness has already been given to you in Christ. You have it. But then Peter goes on to say, for this very reason, because you have it, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Does you have it, right? Now make an effort to use it, to grow in it, to, to add these different pieces together. Conform your life to what you already have in Christ. So we're to take what God has already given us and we are to use it in our lives, progressively becoming more and more familiar with these things, growing in these virtues, becoming more like Jesus from whom grace flows into our lives. Now listen to J.C. Ryle, the way he describes our growth in grace. He says, when I speak of growth in grace, I only mean increase in the degree size, strength, vigor, and power of the graces which the Holy Spirit plants in a believer's heart. When I speak of a man growing in grace, I mean simply this, that his sense of sin is becoming deeper, his faith stronger, his hope brighter, his love more extensive, his spiritual mindedness more marked. He feels more of the power of godliness in his own heart. He manifests more of it in his life. He's going on from strength to strength, from faith to faith, and from grace to grace. That's spiritual growth. That's growth in grace. It's, it's the degrees and size and strength and vigor and power of what God has already given us. To grow in grace is deliberately to put ourselves in situations where we need the experience of God's grace. How do you grow? Put yourself in circumstances where you need God. That's how you grow. And he will give you grace. Look at Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, follow the logic here. We have been given access to the throne of grace. That's why it says you should be confident when you go to God and you ask for grace. Because it's yours. He's already promised it to you. So you go confident to the throne of grace. And when you get there, you receive mercy and grace when you need it. You know that the supply of grace is available to you. So now you go and get it because you need it. Now let me give you some examples. 
You can ignore sin or you can confess sin. You can ignore sin or you can confess sin. When you confess it, you need grace to know that God forgives you and that you are no longer condemned by Him. So when you confess your sin, you put yourself in a situation where you will have to grow in grace because you're going to need it. If you ignore your sin, you're not going to grow in grace. You need grace when you confess your sin to not get crushed by guilt. And in that time of need, the Lord will give you grace. Now, you can accept the presence of sin in your life, or you can fight it. You can accept it, or you can fight it. But when you fight it, you need grace to assure you that the fight is worth it, because you will get tired. You must trust the Holy Spirit to supply the necessary strength to resist temptation. So when you decide and you resolve to resist temptation and not to give in to it, you will need grace and God will give it to you. And you will grow in His grace. Because the Holy Spirit's work in your life is a continuation of God's grace in Christ. It's the same work. The Holy Spirit is doing what Jesus did and Jesus promised that He will send another comforter, another helper like Him to continue that work. And He continues it. Just as Jesus fought our sin on the cross, the Holy Spirit is fighting our sin in our lives today. You can suffer with or without Christ. You can suffer with Christ or you can suffer without Christ. But if you suffer with Christ, you will need grace to see meaning and purpose in your suffering. You need grace to recognize God's presence and care in your suffering. You need to experience grace that is sufficient for you in your pain and in your struggle. How can you grow in grace? You suffer with Christ. And you realize that there is grace that is sufficient not to, not, to, not to push you into bitterness, but prevent you from going into the self-pity and despair and resentment that suffering without Christ naturally brings. You can pursue God or you can pursue self. If you pursue God, you need grace to form and sustain your spiritual habits. You need grace to guard you against legalism. You need grace not to get arrogant in your spiritual accomplishments and to recover from your spiritual failures. So when you step on that path of pursuing God and you're saying, I am going to organize my life with God at its center and I will commit myself to love Him and to know Him and to serve Him, immediately you know your need of grace. Because you can't do it unless the Holy Spirit helps you. And if you think you've done it, you need grace to realize that you're just a legalist. You can rely on the Spirit or you can rely on the flesh. If you rely on the Spirit, you need grace to keep you waiting, to keep you waiting for the Spirit to work, to be patient. You need grace to keep you walking in step with Him. You need grace to wait on the slow but steady appearing of the fruit of the Spirit. You need grace to 
to crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. So when you say, I'm going to follow the Spirit, you're also saying, I need to grow in grace. I need more of God's grace for this. You can love the world or you can love the Lord. You can love the world or love the Lord. But if you love the Lord, you need grace to endure the rejection of the world. You need grace not to conform to the ways of the world under the pressure from others. You need grace to not be overcome with evil, but to overcome evil with good. All these things that I'm describing are simply opportunities that you embrace, that we embrace as Christians for more of God's grace to come into our lives. You can love and serve others, or you can love and serve yourself. But if you love others, you need grace to see yourself as their servant. You need grace to not think about yourself first. And inevitably, you need grace to acknowledge your faults and ask for forgiveness. You need grace to be patient. You need grace to bear with others. You need grace to sacrifice your passions, your plans, and preferences for the sake of others. To grow in grace is to assume a posture of humility before God. It's to live attentive to His voice. It's to seek to please Him. It's to draw near to Him to be transformed in His presence. And as we do that, our experience of grace deepens. James 4 tells us, but He gives, what? More grace. As you humble yourself before God, because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. As you humble yourself before God, he not just gives you grace, but he gives you more grace. He will give you grace for whatever you're doing in that posture of humility, whatever struggle you're experiencing. You are in that path. You're in that place where God's grace will flow. And you will have a deeper experience and a closer application of this grace in your life. Now, I'm going to get a little even more practical. To grow in grace means to use the means of grace. To grow in grace means to use the means of grace. God has provided what we need to grow. The mechanics of spiritual growth, of growth in grace, are not actually confusing or mysterious. Everybody knows what we should do to grow in grace, right? You read your Bible, you pray. You go to church, you serve others, you take the sacrament. These are the things that God has given us because he wants us to grow in grace. And he says, here are the channels. Here are the means of grace. Now use them if you want to grow in grace. The question is not whether you know how. I just told you how in, in 30 seconds. It doesn't take long. The question is, do you want to grow? Do you want to grow? Are you committed to growing in grace? Because that is the only way for you to remain stable or to gain stability amidst the storms. Now, what does it mean to grow in the knowledge of the Lord? That's grace. What does it mean to grow in the knowledge of the Lord? I think Peter primarily has in mind our increasing grasp on the truth of the Bible and the truth of God's Word. I don't think he's talking as much about the relational knowledge of Christ, even though he's talked about it throughout the letter. I think he's actually talking about the knowledge of the truth, 
Now, in context, the apostle pointed out that the false teachers twist the Bible. Now, that, that word twist is, or distort is, is the word used when you just you, you twist joints out of, right? Like you, you twist bones. It's used for torture. <laughs> it's kind of a scary word. But the meaning is that you manipulate and you just work and you find something, you twist it so you can use it for something destructive. That's what the false teachers are doing. They're taking Scripture, but they're deliberately misusing it. They're twisting it into, into something that is unhealthy. Um, I'm going to use an illustration from my, my kids' lives. I think at least a couple of my kids, when I was taking them by the hand, I've dislocated their wrists. <clears throat> Poor parenting, maybe. Overprotective, probably. And so what happens is, you can put it back in, I've learned. <laughs> you don't even have to go to the doctor's. But what happens is it's a weird thing. Once, once the joint is dislocated, there's the, this, this immediate passivity that kind of sets in with the kid. Because the kid doesn't want to move at all because it hurts. And something has to be put back in. And so Peter's using this analogy of when you twist the scriptures, right, it, it quickly leads to unhealthy, dangerous, destructive patterns immediately. And so the only way to fix it is you have to put it back in. You have to return to the truth of the word. You have to fix it. You have to pop it back in and correct it. And then you can move again, which is another thing I learned about my kids. Once you pop it back in, they're kind of fine. Until next time they go to the store with their dad. <clears throat> this is what Peter is talking about. Is it, we're all dealing with that, and it's our firm grasp on the Word, rightly understanding it, is what actually keeps us stable and moving and growing. Now, Peter says, he's referencing Paul's letters, and he's, he's using the same language that he would use of the Old Testament. He's saying these are scriptures, just like the Old Testament scriptures, saying that the New Testament is also inspired, it's also authoritative, and he's saying, use that and don't misuse it, but use it for your health and for your growth. Now, he says an interesting thing. Peter says that some things in Paul's letters are hard to understand. I would add, too, that some things in Peter's letters are hard to understand, too. So let's not, let, let's not elevate Paul over Peter here. There's some confusing stuff we worked through in Second Peter. But if that's true, if some things are hard to understand in the Scriptures... That means we need to work hard to understand them, right? It's not just, let's just read the easy passages. Let's just read what we all understand and agree on. No, we have to do the work. We have to make sure we know how things fit together. We need to work to understand some of these confusing, controversial passages. We must be able to discern when Scripture is twisted, when it's dislocated, when something is wrong, it's been abused, it's been taken out of context, mistranslated or misapplied. We need to be able to tell that, which assumes that we are very familiar with the Scriptures. And we understand even the hard things of Paul and Peter's. To grow in our knowledge of the Bible is to grow in our knowledge of Jesus. Because the book is about him. It's his book. 
We grow in our relationship with him as we grow in our understanding of his words. So if we want to know him, we need to make an effort to know more about him. Understand some of the hard things about him. Put it in perspective. Put it in context. Make sure we have a firm grasp on the Bible. Our stability comes from growing. If we want to survive the next storm, we must keep growing in grace as we battle sin, as we pursue holiness in the power of the Holy Spirit. If we want to resist the next false teaching that's just around the corner, there'll be more false teachers. Don't worry if you miss the latest controversy. There'll be a new one. If we want to resist it, we must keep growing in our knowledge of the Bible. Keep growing. Not stopping, not read it once, and I've read the Bible. No, no, you keep reading it. You keep learning. You keep reconciling some of these difficult passages. And so the question for us is, are we growing? Are we actually obeying the command of the apostle? Are we growing? Don't be a Christian version of the sickly oak with just a few leaves on the branches, shallow roots, leaning and just waiting for the next gust of wind to take you down. Hear the apostle's command and resolve to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Take it seriously. Because this is life and death. This is, this is, Peter is not, he's not kidding around. This is the last thing he wants to tell us before he dies. And his messages keep growing, grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, Lent is coming up on Wednesday. Use this opportunity. Use this opportunity to get your life in order, maybe take on some new spiritual disciplines. What I found in my own life is Lent, though it's a six, seven week period of time, it actually helps you to set up patterns beyond it. It helps you to kind of just gather it together and say, okay, I will now move forward and these are the things I want to address. Use the support of your church community. Use the tools and the gifts that God has given us in the church and grow. Commit yourself to growth. And now, briefly, let me cover the last point. We get to the final doxology of Peter's. And this is the last phrase of verse 18. He's talking about Jesus and he says, To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. This is how he wraps it up. This is how he finishes his letter. But the person who's writing it, right? The person who finishes on this high note, who's, who's, who's talked to us about stability and a firm grasp on the gospel, who's talked to us about being established and unmoving in the Lord, is one of the most notoriously unstable people in the Bible, isn't he? I mean, you know who Peter is. Now, this is his letter. This is his last letter. He ends on the note of doxology to Christ. But if you look at his life, you see a lot of twists and turns, a lot of ups and downs. Peter is the disciple who, who confessed with great clarity and a great boldness, right? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus is saying, uh, who do people think I am? You know, there's all these opinions. Well, some think you're a prophet. Some think you're that. And, and Peter says, I know who you are. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. The great moment for Peter. Followed up in that text, right? 
of him rebuking Jesus because Jesus was talking about the cross and Jesus was saying, I am going to die. And Peter says, don't talk like that. Thinking, if you talk like that, it might happen, right? Don't manifest it, is what he's saying. And Jesus says, what, do you remember what Jesus says? Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> Satan. He called him Satan. This is Peter, right? One moment you are the son of the living God. I know with great clarity who you are. The next, the next moment, he's Satan. Peter is the disciple who, who cut off someone's ear, remember, when Jesus was getting arrested and then quickly abandoned the Lord, denied him three times. He's the one who walked on water and then was drowning and Jesus had to reach down and get him. He's the disciple who opened the doors for the Gentiles to enter the church. But he's also the person who was rebuked by Paul for his hypocrisy when he refused to eat with the Gentiles when the Jews were in town. This is the same person. Is that the most stable person you know? Is this the spiritual rock of the church? No. So how can this person, how can this person write this letter and talk about stability? And the answer is because he's been growing. <laughs> Peter's been growing. You see, he's different now. He's been growing, and he's becoming more stable. He's been growing in the grace and knowledge of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's totally appropriate for him to end his letter, to close his... This is the last thing he wrote, probably. To close it with the worshipful sentence about Jesus. To him. To Jesus. To him. Be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. He's reaching. This unstable person is reaching for something that is the most steady thing, the most stable thing he knows, the person of Jesus. Now, how did Peter survive all the storms of his life? How is it that he was not carried away by false teachings himself? How was he able to keep growing, to overcome his own sin, to pursue holiness? And the answer is simple, by keeping his focus on the person of Jesus Christ. Peter worshipped Jesus. Imperfectly, yeah. With sometimes spectacular instability. But he worshipped him. He held on to him. And so Peter gave glory to Jesus even as he waited for his glorious return to purge all the instability in his heart. But he looked to Jesus. And I've titled this point, His Christ, because I'm talking about Peter, and that's just how it worked in my outline. But really, he's talking about our Christ. He's talking about our Christ. As personal as it is to Peter, it's personal to us. Jesus is the hope of all of us. All the unstable, sickly oaks that need to give growing in grace and knowledge of the Lord. Last illustration. When I was learning how to drive, which is a scary experience to many people in my American family, my mother-in-law still remembers. I remember one of my struggles was, I'm like, how do I go straight? I seem to try to go straight, but I keep going off the road. And my father-in-law told me, well, your mistake is you're looking right in front of you, but you really need to look beyond it. You need to look down the road. That's how you keep straight. 
This is what Peter is doing. He's looking at Jesus. He's looking at the day of his return. And he's saying, my stability comes. My, my strength, my straight path comes because he is who he is. And as long as I keep my eyes on him, I will be okay. He will protect me. He will keep me growing in the knowledge and grace of his Lord.